0: Father in heaven, we thank you that you love us and you let us serve you. Uh, We are left in in our sins. We're undeserving to be even in your presence, let alone serve you. So we thank you that you have purified our hearts through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you let us join you in what you're doing. You're building your kingdom, Lord. And you let us. Be involved with that, Lord, in so many different ways. Lord, help us not be narrow in our thinking of just a few ways that maybe the Lord has served. There is just an abundance of ways that God gets glory through the service of his children. We ask that you bless each and every hand who puts it to the plow. We ask that we would not look back. Whatever row you've asked us to hoe in and to plow in, may we be faithful there. Finish that row, Lord, and then in your divine wisdom, you come and get us and take us to be with you. So Lord, we thank you for our lives in you. Without you, we would have nothing, and apart from you, we can do nothing. And so we find such hope and such encouragement when we stop and think about the ramifications of the gospel in our life. Lord, bless now your word, and thank you that we could sing a song that reminds us that the word does speak speaks to us we don't need some new revelation we have the word has everything we need for life and godliness now speak lord your name amen numbers chapter 19 is our chapter it is a unique passage of scripture there's been many people who have tried to figure something out that's not in this if you follow some of the crazy things that go on in Jerusalem with a lot of the Zionists, they all of a sudden they'll put up, there's a red heifer saw, seen in Jerusalem. Yeah, they have red cows. And somehow they want to turn that into something. And, and, and that's not what this passage is about. This passage is about God's desire for us to come to Him in purity. Listen to this verse in Titus chapter 1, verse 15. To the pure, all things are pure. Now, who is that pure? Well, certainly not us on our own, right? You and I did not somehow get ourselves to be pure in front of a holy God. That is such a farce, isn't it? We were the most unpure. We were born unpure. But God made us pure through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So to the pure, all things are pure. He makes People who are impure, and you can think about everything you want, you want, and people caught in this sin and that, it teaches us that we were unpure before we came to know Christ. And so he purifies everything in our life. But to those, the Bible says in Titus 115, that those who are defiled, and here's the word, and unbelieving, unpure and unbelieving go together. Pure and and believing go together. That's that's what he's trying to get through here. Nothing is pure to them, but both their minds and their conscience are defiled. So as we drop into Numbers chapter 19, God wants a pure people in front of him. He always has. That's always been his desire. That's always been his plan, to bring people in purity before him. I want to look at a couple of thoughts as we work our way down through this. This is a challenging passage, so stay with me on this. Number one, God and his provision for purity. Let's just read those first 10 verses quickly, and then we'll start to dissect them a little bit. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. You shall give it to Eliezer the priest, and it shall be brought outside the camp and slaughtered in his presence. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of the blood with his fingers and sprinkle some of the blood towards the front of the tent of the meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood and its refuge shall be burned. The priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water, and after come into the camp, but the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place, and the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity, it is purification, from sin. The one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean till evening, and it shall be a perpetual state to the sons of Israel and to the aliens who sojourn among them. Well, as we venture in from chapter eighteen to chapter nineteen, I just want to remind you what chapter eighteen was about. Chapter eighteen was about the responsibilities and privileges of the Levites and the priesthood. Their job was to protect the tabernacle. That unclean things would not get to the tabernacle, would not come towards the presence of God. And they had an obligation. What could come near, what could not come near, what was obligated and what was not obligated. And chapter 18 makes that clear. In fact, it makes a clear statement to the Levitical tribe there that they're under Aaron and his sons, and they had obligations of what to do and what not to do. Now, Aaron and his sons could not just come anyway there was a way for them to come but the priesthood was not to to, not to get out of their lane and come and do the things Aaron was supposed to do they had their own chores to do before God and so verse chapter 18 taught us all of those roles of Aaron and his son after God had butted his rod to make sure that he and he alone could come into the presence and no other none of the other priesthood could come But then in chapter 18, there was also the provision for the Levites and the priesthood. They had no inheritance. Remember, they owned no land. They were not given sections of land. But God gave them a portion of the tithes and offerings, and that's what they survived on. So chapter 18 focused on the priesthood and the Levites. Now chapter 19. And God does something unique here. As you come to 19, God divinely and uniquely in somewhat very unusual Um, provides for all the other tribes to come into the presence of God in a pure way. Now, I want you to think about this. Because God is a God of the living, he desires that his people be free from the uncleanliness of death. He wants them free of the uncleanliness of death. That's what this whole passage is about. Sin and death always go together, and God wants them free from that. Now, at the same time, God wants his people to understand that they too should desire, not do it because here's a new statute or new law. They should be desire themselves to be free from death, and particularly the stain of sin. Now, God institutes here one of the most unusual I think, unparalleled rituals that we see in Scripture, and it's not seen anywhere else. This is the only place this is in the entire Scriptures. It is the slaying of a red heifer. It's not, in reality, part of the whole sacrificial system, per se, but it's done, it's done in the presence of a priest, but it's hard to understand. It, it, the priest might be there, and then somebody else is slaughtering it, but he's, he's in the presence of it, and it's done outside the gate, it's not done in the courtyard like all the other sacrifices are done, it's done outside the gate and the priesthood are there watching and overseeing all of these things are happening. Another unique aspect as we read those first ten verses is that the entire animal is given to God. Everything in this animal is given. Nothing is reserved for the priesthood, they don't get a portion of this. It's a complete sacrifice, it's completely burned up and it's Ashes are used for the water of purification. We'll get into that more in a minute. Now, livestock were expensive in this ancient world. It was what you were worth, right? If you had ten goats and two camels, I mean, you were that was a certain status right uh, there was valuable and, and plus they already had a sacrificial system where once a year they brought in unblemished lambs and so what it seems what God is doing is instead of each family bringing a red heifer it seems that there was one donated here to the cause and the ashes of that red heifer were used over a long period of time they would use a portion of those ashes and mix them with this spring water, um, and this would last for some time until they had to sacrifice another red heifer. And it was for anyone who came in contact with a dead body, a corpse of some sort. Now, the ritual itself, when it's followed, you can, let I me. Mean, I just kind of abbreviated these ten verses. They select a red heifer, and for those of you that are probably not from the ranch. A heifer is a female cow, and yes, we can use those pronouns, a female cow who's not been bred. She's never been bred, so she's this is before she has. We we make this a little confusing on the ranch because we go, you so, know, I thought that was a heifer. Well, that's a first calf heifer, and well, that's a second calf heifer, so, so we can confuse it sometimes because um, we're speaking of a very young cow, but a heifer is one that has never been bred. So this is a red heifer, red in color, most likely for the color of blood, that would have been shown because that was always part of the purification. It was chosen without blemish, so there's no, no outward markings on it. It's not lame in any way. And it's never had a yoke. That means it's never been worked. It's never been hitched up in any way. And it's taken outside the camp. It's slain in the presence of the priest who takes this blood, dips its fingers in it, and sprinkles it towards the front of the tabernacle seven times a mark of perfection. Then the carcass of the animal is entirely burned up, and you'll notice that they were to take cedar wood and throw it into the fire and You go, "Well why cedar well i 'm not sure totally, but one, it was fairly expensive. Uh, most of the cedars in that area would come from lebanon uh, and and so there was transportation a lot of a lot of things that were built later on temples and Solomon's house and so forth were made out of that so it was expensive and it also has a reddish hue to it if you notice good cedar so that was to be thrown in the fire and then also hyssop and hyssop was a stiff leafy bulb that if you dipped it in water it held water within it and we'll get to that in more in a minute and then some kind of scarlet material. It really doesn't tell us, but most like it's wool because they would have had wool on hand from the sheep and goats that they would have been tending. And so the only thing that is left is just ashes. And once this carcass is completely consumed, the ashes are gathered, they're collected together, and they're preserved in a clean spot for future use. And so when any person came in contact with a dead person, they became ceremonially unclean. And a portion of these ashes would be mixed with clean running spring water, and they would clean that that clean person, would dip that hyssop bulb in there, uh, and that mixture of the ash and the water, and they would sprinkle it on the unclean person. And God was making a provision for purity for his people. He wants people pure who come into his presence. So that's the overall layout of the process here. Number two. There's an overcoming death in entering the presence of God. Look at verses 11 through 13. The one who touches the corp of any person shall be unclean for seven days. And that one shall purify himself from uncleanness with the water on the third day and on the seventh day. And then he shall be clean, but if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Anyone who touches a corpse, the body of a man who has died, does not purify himself, defiles the tabernacle of the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from Israel because the water for impurity was not sprinkled on him. He shall be unclean. His uncleanness is still on him. Now, what God is doing here is showing a very gracious act through this ordinance that provides kind of an already made sin offering in a sense. It's there. It's been done. Those ashes have been collected. And any time somebody got into a situation where maybe a loved one passed away in their tent or in their house, they were unclean if they're in the presence of that or if they touched that. We'll see a little bit later. Almost everything in that room is unclean. That's not sealed um, they now are considered unclean and they can't come into the presence of God because they have the presence of death on them. Now I think this is really cool. God does not allow the presence of death in his presence. We have eternal life ahead of us, not eternal death. God is a God of life. And I think this is so fabulous because the more I study this, I thought, Lord, this is so cool. You, you are a God of life. And certainly he has all things in his hands, right? He, he does control life and death. He, he, every day is numbered before they were ordained, right? Oh, Their hair's on our head. I mean, all, all of that great sovereign teaching that we have. But yet God is a God of life. And everything that will be in his presence is life. And when, even when you start to think about judgment to come, that is continual death, He separates himself from that. Those he brings into his presence, he gives continual life, and he does not want even the residue of death on them. That's what this text is about. It is quite fascinating, isn't it? Now, this ritual had to have been taken serious. God's serious when he says, I want you to do these things, right? And you see how serious is it? Because this application of this water of purification is done twice. and and I read quite a bit on this and never found any kind of like-minded thoughts over lots of people, but all of them just said that they did it twice because it was a statement that I believe you, God, I trust that this is what you want, and so not only will I do it once, I'll do it twice and it's over the seven-day period on the third day and the seventh in order to be clean again. But notice in that the failure to obey this ordinance not be clean in the presence of God or try to come into the presence of God, there is this stiff penalty in verse 13 that you'll be cut off. Now that word cut off, that term there is used several things. One, of sudden death. There are times the Bible says he cut them off and they died, right? Sons of prophets and and priests and so forth, we see that. And then there's others that are removed from the nation, completely removed from the nation and not allowed to be in the nation. And so they've lost their complete identity. And so what this is tells us how serious God is about the presence of death in his presence. He is a God of life. A God of life. And his goal is eternal life for his people. That's what he wants. He desires his people to know. He wants them to know that the sting of death is sin and that sin and death will not be in his presence. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, just think about our loved ones who have gone before us. We're we're here dealing with death, right? Some of us have people who are close or close to us, or are about to die, or getting close to that. We're all dealing with this. And we were sitting at the table this evening talking about that, and we're here left to deal with death, aren't we? And it's hard. It's heartbreaking. We miss those loved ones. We hate to watch them suffer. We're here. But that goes away completely, not not just in whole, but in, uh, not, not just part, but in whole. We don't even experience the agony of death, all the ramifications of sin. God removes that. He does not want that in his presence. And he shows this in the Old Testament in this way. So in this ancient ritual here, this ancient law handed down, God was blessing the nations with a ceremony that gave them the ability to overcome death albeit temporarily, but overcome death and come to his presence. What he's doing is they had sacrifices going to be made, first fruit offerings, uh, free will offerings. All of those were going to be made. He did not want them to be dealing with, you know, Uncle Bob who just died and then come from that and come into his presence. There was a way. He wanted you free from the stench of death. And so he provided this great ceremony, and it truly was a means of grace for God's people. Now, look at the third one. Widespread destructiveness of sin and death. And it really is. Uh, 14 through 22, we read the end of the passage here, and then we'll jump into some fun things to think about here. This is, uh, this is the law. When a man dies in a tent, everything that comes into the tent, everyone who is in the tent shall be unclean for seven days. Every open vessel which has no covering tied on it, shall be unclean. Also, everyone who is in the field touches one who has been slain with a sword or who has died naturally or a human bone or a grave shall be unclean for seven days. Then for the unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the burnt purification from, from sin, and the flowing water shall be added to them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hess up and dip it into the water and sprinkle it on the tent and on all the furnishings and on the person who, who were there and on the one who touched the bone or the slain one uh, or the one dying naturally or, or the grave. Then the clean person shall sprinkle on the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day he shall purify himself from uncleanness and he shall wash his clothes and bathe himself and he shall be clean by evening." But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself from uncleanness, that person shall be cut off from the midst of the assembly because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. And the water for impurity has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. So he shall be perpetu- this shall be a perpetual state for them. And he who sprinkles the water for the impurity shall wash his clothes. And he, and he sh- who touches the water for impurity shall be unclean until evening. Furthermore, anything that the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. Now, there's a lot of uncleanness there, isn't there? But you get the idea here. And so the main point of this section is that all who lived in the same tent or the house of this person who died, and all who came in and out of the dwelling were regarded to be unclean. Whether or not they even came in contact with a body here. You can just see that God is testifying to the, I think what he's testifying to the widespread effects of sin and death. They get on everything. That's what sin does. And even an unseen, uh, like an unsealed vessel you see in verse 15 there is affected by the uncleanness of death. And it goes all the way, if you notice all the way down in 15 and 16, it goes all the way to the grave. So if you touch a grave in verse 16, you're unclean. Now, you always wondered where Jesus got that statement from. You're like whitewashed tombs. Remember that? Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he's rebuking the scribes and Pharisees as woe to you. We call it the woe passage. Hypocrites. For you whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. And what had happened, both in Israel and in the Pharisees, they had become so consumed with not being unclean that they merely dealt with the outside and they would constantly wash graves. And they had no desire to change the heart, and Jesus knew that. And by the time Jesus is on the earth, they had taken this directive and made this a huge outward demonstration of their cleanliness. Their tombs were whitewashed. They were super white and clean. And Jesus said, the inside is full of deadness, just like them. And so both the Israelites and the Pharisees, they missed the truth of this teaching and and they remain dead, and Jesus calls them out on that. And that's what went on to happen here. Now, if you didn't take this serious, God was very offended at it, right? He's always offended at sin. And and so this ashes of this heifer and the law itself had to be dealt with a heart. If you didn't deal with a the heart, then it was worthless, right? And that's what happens to the nation of Israel. As we follow them, they stopped doing things from their heart, although they kept going to temple, They stopped doing things from their heart and then that led them into all kinds of wickedness though they continued to go to temple. Now it is said that during the times of the fall of Israel that they would literally go to the temple, to the tabernacle in the morning, offer sacrifices to God and burn their babies to Baal in the afternoon. Complete, outward, fake, false worship of God. And so God is serious about this, and so this is why there's done twice. He wants people free of sin, free of death in his presence, and that was the whole purpose of the sacrificial system. Even today, though, I think that's a problem we struggle with, right? When we don't apply it to our heart where real changes come, legalism is just waiting there. And legalism is this, this idea that you're strengthened by judging someone else. It's it's very dangerous because it doesn't go through our hearts. It's it's one thing to to have a desire to help somebody, to lovingly care for them, to help them out of sin. But there's another thing to sit back and say in a judgmental way where it hasn't gone through your own heart, through your own mind, through your own soul, and then condemn others. Now, when it comes to death and sin, I just want to knock this point home with us. When you think about the atmosphere of God, what's around God? He is a God of life, and he's intolerant. He is intolerant of the atmosphere of death. (laughs) He is a God of life. And so all of these are there. Now, now, that made me think of some passages. God loves life so much, we see in Luke 16 a great chasm between the life that, that Lazarus is, is experience, and the rich man is experience. You remember the verse? Luke chapter 16, verse 26. And besides all of this, remember Jesus the, is telling that, you know, in, on earth, his, this Lazarus, he suffered greatly, and the rich man suffered, had all these things, and, and now God is required of their souls. And he says, besides all of this, between us and you, there is a great chasm fixed between that chasm is life, comfort. The, the, the Lazarus was in the comfort of the bosom of Abraham. We, and, and though that's a very difficult term for us to kind of get our mind around this, this life. But it was a, it's a statement of ultimate comfort of life. And between that was the chasm of death over here. Continual dying, the agony of death eternally that the rich man was suffering. And so these chasms separate the atmosphere of life and the atmosphere of death. God is about life. Verse 20 reminds us that God wants sin and death removed from his people. And if they refuse to do that, they have to be removed from him. And that's, I I say this all the time. One of the great joys and blessings of heaven is that there will be no sin there. Isn't that going to be awesome? And just don't think about the sin of other people. Think about your sin of yourself. I will no longer have any more struggles with sin in any shape or form because I will be like Christ. That should cause every one of us to long for the return of Jesus. We long for that, right? And that's what we see in this. He goes, look, cut them off. I am not a God of death. If they will not cleanse themselves from death, they will not have me. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us. He cleanses us from the stench of death. And I want to get in and spend my rest of my time in point four here. The shadow of a red heifer that leads to Christ. And really, this is an application um, point that um, because you have to see this this all ends up in the New Testament. In the New Testament loves to take these old covenant principles and show the significance and the importance and how they shadow they shadow the shadow leads if you follow the shadow out it'll come to Jesus Christ. Let me show you. Go to Hebrews chapter 9. Cuz we all, we hear uh, we hear about in particular Hebrews, about the blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. We'll look at that passage in just a minute. But what about this whole red heifer and ashes and all that stuff? Well, it makes its way in here too. This one chapter makes its way into the book of Hebrews for us to understand. Look at chapter 9, verse 13. Remember, these are a shadow of things to come. Keep your finger there and just flow across to chapter 10, verse 1 there. For the law, since it is only a shadow of good things to come and can and, and, and not the very form of things, can never, very key phrase there, can never by the same sacrifices which they offered continually year by year make perfect the one who draws near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered because the worshiper having once been cleansed, would no longer have the conscience of sin. But the problem is they still have what? They have the conscience of sin. But in those sacrifices, there was a reminder of sin year by year, verse 4, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Therefore, when he, Jesus, came into the world, he said to his father, this has to be a, a divine, heavenly conversation here, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. So here is the shadow of things to come, but what about this heifer? Go back to chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls, and here we go, look at this, in the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those would have been defiled the sanctuary for the cleansing of flesh how much more would the blood of christ through the through the eternal spirit offer himself without blemish to god cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living god now isn't that fascinating not just the sin offerings and the burn offerings and all those offerings where you came to be reconciled with God and an innocent animal died on your in your place, but it brings into this whole uh, narrative of our salvation here this red heifer that was that was completely consumed with fire, with hyssop and and cedar wood and and red cloth brought into it, and those ashes would be mixed with purified water, and that would cleanse you over a seven-day period so you can come into the presence of God, that is brought into this. And to me, it's so fascinating. And, and, And notice that it says, those who have been defiled from the sanctuary for the cleansing of the flesh there was cleansing by those sacrifices. Now, just not by the sacrifice itself, but the faith in that sacrifice. Particularly, faith in the God who instructed that sacrifice, that he would accept that and reconcile you and purify you in his presence. We come to God by what? Faith alone. It has always been that way. And so... We see that only the final sacrifice of Christ, as we go to chapter 10 and you look at that, is the only one that can deal with a real sin problem and death problem forever. But the Old Testament shadows over and over. These shadows are cast down through history. And when you follow that shadow out, whether it's this red heifer or the burnt offerings or the sacrifice offerings, guess where that shadow comes to? Jesus. Every time. And that was planned from the foundations of the world. I want you to understand this doesn't mean that the Old Testament sacrifices were ineffective. They certainly were. Our triune God which would include Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. He was at work in the Old Testament. He was blessing, he was guiding, and he was sanctifying these people. And while they were... Certainly learning to look forward to a Messiah, this final lamb in the, sac- the sacrificial substitution or sacrificial lamb that would come. They put their faith in God that there was one coming who would justify them. And so listen, when Moses and ever, every patriarch that you enjoy, male, female, matriarchs, when they came with their offering by faith, God forgave them of their sins and they were purified before God. This just wasn't some kind of covering until Jesus shows up. They were truly forgiven because it was done in faith. That's why the whole chapter in Hebrews 11 is by faith. The Westminster Confession writes on this. It's actually fascinating here when we get to that confession of faith. And it's real biblical theology. Here's what they say regarding this. This covenant of grace, even in the Old Testament, was differently administered in the time of the law And in the time of the gospel, under the law, it administered by promises, prophecies, sacrifices, circumcision, the Paschal Lamb, and other types and ordinances delivered to the people of the Jews, all for signifying Christ to come, which were for that time sufficient in efficaces. It was was efficient, right? It was sufficient for everything. Through the operation of the Spirit, the Spirit of God was involved in this because it's all pointing to Jesus in the future to instruct and to build the elect in faith in the promise of the Messiah by whom they had full remissions of sin and eternal salvation. When we get to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, there's two men that show up there. Who are they? Moses and Elijah. Elijah. They are in the presence, they're coming from the presence of a holy God, coming to the presence of the revealed Holy Christ, right? There he's revealed in all his glory for that moment. There he is with those men who came to God through this sacrificial system, putting their faith in God that God would cleanse their their sins as they looked forward to a kingdom not of this world and a king of kings and a lord of lords. And God justified them. So when we think about the old covenant and the effectiveness of it, uh, we we see it signifying it's pointing towards something, it's pointing towards the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So God graciously forgave sins in the Old Testament. He made a way for you to be pure, to come into his presence. But all of that left to itself would not have saved them, but it held them it held them saved in their faith while the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross washes all the way back to that first believer, Adam, most likely, and washes all the way forward to the last believer. And that's why the, the cross is the center, the pinnacle of all of history. And we thank the Lord for that. And so God graciously forgives the sins of the Old Testament saints. And, th- and I don't think they're just covered Temporarily. They're genuine saints that experience genuine forgiveness for God and God is saying, come this way and I will forgive you because it's all a shadow of things to come. And so that's why we love the cross of Christ. We love the resurrection and we love that it's planted right in the center of all of history because the blood of Christ washes back and washes forward, doesn't it? Same forgiveness. So whatever time frame or dispensation if you want to use that word of people lived in there was one way to receive forgiveness of sins and it came through obedience to the way God said to come come through something innocent that dies in your place and put your faith in me that I'm going to provide one who will Wash his blood over you. I I got thinking about this verse today. Uh, John chapter 8, verse 56. It says this, your father Abraham, Jesus is really going at it with the Pharisees. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Bible says in in Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham. Abraham looked at the sacrifices, looked at the system that God... God lay down, and he rejoiced over a coming Messiah. And he rejoiced to see the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means that those sacrifices, that faith that Abraham had in God, that God would deliver him through, from all of his sins, and he had them, right? Sold his wife out twice. I mean, you can go down through the list of things that he did. He, he, he purified him, and he saved him, and he kept him saved. He forgave him of his sins, and so when the the Son of God comes to the earth, Abraham sees that day. He rejoices over it. And if your sins are forgiven, you know what rejoicing is like, and Abraham rejoiced over that. And so Abraham's God-given faith and the promise of a deliverer, the Messiah, it granted him the ability to see a coming Christ. We see that in Hebrews 11. They looked forward to something greater. It gave him the ability to see that Christ was going to pay for his sin once and for all, and he rejoiced at the day of Jesus because he was forgiven. All of that Old Testament law pointed forward. Now, the purifying work of Christ washes back, of course, as we said. But Jesus, he, he takes things like this and does marvelous things. He, and I think this refers back to this passage in a lot of ways. Think of John chapter 2, the wedding at Canaan. So he, there they run out of wine, right? You know the story. So Jesus takes the purification jars, (laughs) fills them up with water, turns them into wine. And everybody, what, rejoices. And and there's such a key to that text because you realize that Christ is saying, I am better. I am the one who can purify you. I am sweeter. I bring you great joy. In fact, they said most people bring out the good wine at first and then save the bad stuff for later. But he, he brings out the best at the end. Because everything leads to him and he is the sweetest and the best and he makes you happy. So we see it there. We go to John chapter 13. Just flip over there with me real quickly. We see our Lord do amazing things with water. As you're going there, think about other things he's did. He washed He washed the eyes of blind men, and they rejoiced. And here in John chapter 13, he washes the feet of his disciples. Look at verse 5. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wiped them with a towel with which he was girded. So he came to Simon Peter, and he said to him, Lord, do not wash my feet. And Jesus answered and said to him, what you what what i do you do not realize now but you will understand hereafter and peter said to him never shall you wash my feet it's just a servant position he couldn't imagine jesus doing this jesus answered him if i do not wash you you will have no part of me and peter said to him lord then wash not only my feet but also my hands and my head and jesus said to him he who has bathe needs only to wash his feet but is completely clean and you are clean but not all of you speaking of judas for he knew the one who was who was betraying him for this reason he said not all of you are clean so when he had washed their feet and taken his garment and reclined at the table he said to them do you know what i have done you call me teacher and lord and you are right for i am if I, then, the Lord and teacher wash your feet, you also ought to wash the feet of one another. Here our Lord takes some sort of water to wash away the dirt off of the feet of the disciples. And I think he demonstrates to his disciples that that it was it was not possible to walk in this world without picking up the dust of the world. And so here we find this story of Jesus washing their feet and the imagery is that of a, a man who's gone to the local or public bathhouse there and he's bathed himself, he's cleaned himself, and now he walks home on the dirty streets and when he gets in he, he's clean but his feet are dirty from the walk home. He does not need his whole body washed again. He just needs his feet washed again. So Jesus is demonstrating that by washing the feet of his disciples. And and I would imagine Peter and probably every one of the disciples, I would give them the benefit of the doubt that they were humbled at this and did not want the Lord to wash them. But you can see Christ explains the need for washing away of daily sins so that you will enjoy my presence See, we don't enjoy the Lord when we're struggling with sin. If you have unconfessed sin, and you're here tonight trying to hear the Word of God, and and you know it's wrong, and you have not dealt with that, it's very difficult to find joy, isn't it? Gina and I, for years, I've been preaching for all of our married life. We know that we have to be right with each other. I'll get up here and these, bl- these pages look blank if I'm not right with her. Because I'm not right with her, I'm not right with God. And so we keep very short accounts. And, and we're certainly not a perfect marriage in any way, but we work hard to keep short accounts. Because I want the joy of the Lord. And so as Christians who have been washed and have been purified and have a right standing before God, we trudge around in this world full of jealousies and envies and, and desires for money and desires for all kinds of things we pick up some of that don't we and we need to be purified in a in a continual way not in salvific way but but humble ourselves to say oh lord i have sinned today i have not done what you've told me to and i want to be right with you see it always comes back to christ and just as the red heifer was taken outside the camp, Jesus was taken outside the camp, he died and we can continually go to him and look for that. Now, when we start to look at water, um, we've seen, we saw in Numbers 19, that these ashes would be taken, they would be gathered up by a clean person, and they would be put in this clean place, and then they would be used with this water, with these unclean people who would come who had dead around them, and it would be used. But, so we've talked about the ashes, we talked about where they all came by, but what about this water? Well, the water says it was running water, it was clean water. Um, the Hebrew uses an idea of spring-type water that was used. But water has always symbolized several things within the New Testament. One, it symbolizes the Scriptures. The water is symbolized as the Scriptures, both of the Word and of the Spirit of God. We see that throughout the Scriptures. And so the believer who goes through struggles with sin and and understands that's there, we we need to be convinced that the Holy Spirit works through the Word of God to wash our sins away. And, And there's a continual aspect to that. Now, and I want to be clear here, this is not a loss of salvation, this is dealing with our broken fellowship with the Lord at times. Jesus said, I will send you one, one who will come and convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And so when we think about water, it often refers to the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit speaks and He uses the Word of God and brings afresh again the cross that reminds us of our cleansing and brings us to repentance. I promise, if you don't repent with the cross in mind, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, you probably didn't repent. You probably said, well, I'm sorry, I wish I wouldn't have done that, but you did this, and so I shouldn't have done that, and so forth. When we really repent, we come back to the cross again. We see that that caused Christ. sin caused the death of Christ and that leads us to repentance and our feet are washed again how many how many have washed your feet this week and said Lord Jesus will you forgive me I shouldn't have said that I shouldn't have acted that way I shouldn't have had those thoughts you died for those things see that's the spirit of God through the word of God pushing you to the ever-cleansing power of the cross the sufficiency of the gospel, the sufficiency of Christ's finished work. We need that daily. We also see the blood of Christ and the word of God and the spirit of God. They're all associated with cleansing within the New Testament. I just i, I got going down that rabbit trail tonight and today, and I started thinking of verses, John 15, 3. You are already clean because of the word which I spoke to you. So he he takes the word, which is often referred to the living water and so forth, right? Um, salvation, the word, living water, all those things. He uses that in John 4. And he says, you're already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. And then John picks up this in his first epistle in John seven. he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all our sins. So so now you have the word that cleanses us. You have the blood of Christ that cleanses us. And then listen to John chapter 5, 6-8. This is a powerful passage of Scripture. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is truth, right, the Word. Therefore, these three testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And I think many people have argued over this passage. You can read all kinds of things. But needless to say, all three are active in the way they work in our life to not only bring us into the kingdom of God, but daily bring us to a purity and cleansing and a right fellowship with the Lord. Spirit should, should be bugging you when you're in sin. And I, ho- I hope you never get comfortable with sin as Christians. See, that's where Paul says, don't quench the spirit. See, he, he has a cleansing job. He comes and says, hey, hey, the Lord Jesus died for that. Why are you engaging in that? The spirit has a great role in, in our continual cleansing, that daily cleansing to keep fellowship with the triune God. He is, is in that. He comes and he convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment. He does those things. And then, certainly, the Word of God does that. The Spirit uses the Word of God. It teaches us what God is pleased with, what God is not pleased with. And see, that keeps us away from legalism because we read our Bibles, and the Bible says this is how you live your life. This is how, what marriage is about. This is what about raising childrens about. This is what it is like to be in this world, not to be friends with this world. It teaches us all those things. And so the Word of God has that cleansing nature to it. And certainly the blood of Christ. I repent of my sins because I remember that Jesus died for me. If I don't repent of my sins based on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, I really probably don't deal with my sins the way God wants me to. It has to be, I have to go back and say, you were nailed to the cross for that godless thought. Or that statement that got out of my mouth that caused your death and i am sorry lord i know you've forgiven me thank you for the cleansing power of of your cross work in my life give me strength through your finished work the word and your spirit not to fall back into that sin again see See how we do that? That's how how God has given us the the wonderful way to be in his presence. And when I look at Numbers chapter 19, God was doing the same with them. He wants them to come into presence. He, He wants them to bring their sacrifices to him. He wants them to be reconciled with him. But he wants them to come and leave death and sin behind because that has no presence with him. And every time you go into your prayer closet and every time you pray with the Lord driving down the highway, you walk into his presence and you leave sin and death behind because that's what he forgives. And he gives you life and he gives you life abundantly. Numbers chapter 19 was preparing the nation to come before the Lord, not just the priesthood this time now it 's the, the benjaminites it 's the judah it 's judah it 's it's, it's Dan and Gad and so forth, all of them now let 's go a little farther with this water thinking. What happened when the soldiers pierced jesus' side in John nineteen yeah isn 't that interesting? Blood and water comes out. We come right back to those. Two very important purifying things. No one is forgiven without the remission of sins. No no shedding of blood, no remissions of sin. And water was always a teaching of purification. That's why it's so interesting he grabbed the pots of purification to do the wine in. It's so interesting that water flows out of him. What was coming out of our Lord Jesus Christ is forgiveness and purification and cleansing to all who come to him. And there, in a very real, very sobering way, our Lord Jesus Christ, who's dead now, is pierced by this unknown soldier who spears him in the side and blood and water comes out, according to John's testimony. He is a God who forgives. And the purifying work of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ, he forgives our past, he forgives our present, he forgives our future sins, he forgives all of that. And he helps us through that to stay in fellowship with the Father. And so, yes, we're not going to burn up a red heifer out back here and, and mix its ashes with the water. Because all that was a shadow appointing pointing to Jesus Christ. And every one of us, every one of us, right where you sit, can come to the Lord Jesus and say, will you cleanse me? I was not like you today. I did not think like you. I did not act like you. And I didn't speak like you. And I'm sorry, Lord. And he'll wash your feet away. He'll wash those sins away. And you'll, you'll, you'll have your joy returned. I want you to think about some of our patriarchs in the Old Testament. One in particular. Turn to, with me to Psalms chapter 51. and I'll quit with this here. Psalms 51. This little chapter had a great impact on a lot of the patriarchs, particularly David. They understood they were saved. And that's, this passage really helps you understand what I was talking about. The Old Testament saints understood they were forgiven. They actually understood they were not going to lose their salvation, but what they did understand was they were going to lose the joy of their salvation if they stayed in sin. Look at Psalms 51 with me, verse 7. This whole passage is just an astounding confession of David over the sin with Bathsheba, the murder of his, her husband, um, the lying to the nation. All kinds of things here here. And he's, he prays for graciousness. He wants to be washed in verse 2 from his iniquity. Cleanse me from my sins. Look at all these terms. This is all same language that comes out of uh, Numbers 19. I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. There's a reality of sin and death. Um, he, somewhere along the line, the son has died. And, and think about this. After nine months to a year after the sin, this prayer comes. Because we know this is a response to Samuel coming to him and saying, excuse me, Nathan coming to him and saying, you've sinned. That man is you, right? So he waits for nine months to ten months and lives in this sin. And notice what he says. He he says in verse 7, oh, excuse me, verse. I want to keep going here. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. I've done this evil in your sight. You watched me do it. You watched me lie with another man's wife. You watched me have orders to slay him. You watched the lies that I told to the soldiers. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. I'm deprived. I came from depravity. And in sin, my mother conceived me. He's just talking about depravity. That's where he's born, a sinner. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and in the hidden parts you will make known my wisdom. Now listen, look what he does here. Purify me with hyssop. We're right back to Numbers chapter 19, aren't we? He wants to be cleansed of death. He wants to come into the presence of God without that. Purify me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. You go, this almost sounds like he needs to be saved. Make me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me me away from your presence. He saw that happen to Saul. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, not even my salvation, your salvation. David in the Old Testament knew he was saved. What he lost was his joy. And so he says, take that hyssop, sprinkle it on me, scrub it out of me. I don't want the sin anymore. I want to be right with you. This is one of the greatest chapters of repentance ever written. And here, this is an Old Testament saying, a thousand years before the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is desiring the joy of of God's salvation to return. God wants us to come into his presence free of sin, free of the stench of death. He wants all of his people to realize there is no death in my presence. Come, you are free of that. And that's why those who pass from this life, the moment they pass from this life, death is gone. They're alive forevermore with the Lord Jesus Christ. And someday he'll resurrect our bodies, but they are alive with the Lord Jesus Christ. In closing, I could go on and on about this passage. It just gets you all fired up, doesn't it? I want to make sure that you understand the context, though, of 19. It's about defilement of being around dead bodies, death, and sin causes death, right? and unclean they can't come into the presence of god and this is god's just very gracious way to allow the israelites to be pure and to come into his presence and offer sacrifices they weren't even, they're not priests they're not of the little tribe god is just being gracious here's a way you can be cleansed you can come into my presence and be right and be the and death and defilement will not be upon you but for us under the new covenant it reminds us that they're are all kinds of deadly things in this dying world that we need to be scrubbed off of every once in a while. Will you say tonight, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. I've sinned. I have some pride. I've spoke poorly. I've thought poorly. I want the joy of my salvation back again. Will you examine and Take time to find what took away of your joy. What robbed your joy? And I think that's what you gotta get down to. I gotta get down to too. What is it? What where is my joy being robbed? What sin is taking that joy away? Where I don't have this, this excitement to meet with Jesus in the morning. I don't have this excitement to read his word. What's robbing of that? How deep a cleansing do you need with that bulb, that hyssop bulb? Well, Jesus has that, and he'll give it to you. And he proved it, right? He died on the cross. He shed his own blood to cleanse you. Uh, His word is the water and the spirit, and they convict our hearts, and they make us uh, have a fresh new experience with him in, in a sense, not in a new salvation We are stay saved, but, but he refreshes that. And, and I always love, I, I don't want to fall away from the Lord, but I always love the return to him, right? Your joy is back. For me, it's, it, uh, I begin to see vision again of, of what God wants me to do in my life and direction for the church and all those type of things when I'm right with the Lord. I'm excited to come home and see my wife. I'm excited to hear from my children. I'm excited to hear your testimonies. When we're right with God, joy returns. And His mercy, remember, it's new every morning. So you can wander around in the desert and have your feet really dirty. Or you can turn to the well of living water and say, Oh, Lord, I failed you when you loved me. I am so sorry. Will you forgive me? See, enjoy repentance because you have it. You have the ability to repent. The world's lost. They they don't even know how to get it. God has done a miracle in their life. He's already done that miracle in your life. Enjoy repentance because you can repent and you are forgiven. That's what the Bible teaches us. We don't have to go take somebody's red heifer and kill it and Burn cedar and all kinds of things with it. All we have to do is bend our knee to the Lord. He'll provide for you. He's already done it. He's provided the all finished work of God of Christ on the cross, and so we come to him by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ alone, and there's mercy new again and again for us. David knew it, and Jesus wasn't even here yet. He knew it. He knew he was forgiven. But he wanted that stench of sin and death off of him. He wanted his joy back. Do any of you need your joy back? Spend time with the Lord. Ask him to give it back. Repent. Find those things in your life that are robbing him. And he'll give it back to you. Father, thank you for an Old Testament passage that's so obscure. it, It just seems odd for us in this time and age, this red heifer. And yet, Lord, there was this gracious way to take people who were not Levites, were not part of the priesthood, were not descendants of Aaron, so that they could be right. Death could be removed from them. Because in your presence there is no death, there is life. You are the giver of new life. You are the sustainer of life. You love life. And so you gave them a way to come to you. Free from death and sin. And so when they brought their sacrifices, they could come with a right heart. They could worship. They could could offer you up the sacrifice of praise with their animals. We offer up the sacrifice of praise with our lips. And we can do that without guilt. Because you, you, Lord Jesus, you're at you're at the end of the long cast shadow. That's you at the end of that. It's you on the cross. It's you beating sin and Satan and death and resurrection. It's you there that purifies us. It's you that cleanses us. It's you that gives us the joy of your salvation. So Lord, I I pray that we would be men and women, young people who love the gospel, not only because it saved us, but because it keeps us walking in a right relationship with you. And so, Lord, I pray for any of us who have lost our joy, who have let maybe even the world's circumstances rob them, or maybe a sin issue that they've been struggling with and they've been blame-shifting it off to someone else and not dealing with their own sin, Lord. I, I pray that tonight, Lord, you would show them that you have made a way for their conscience to be clear, for them to be forgiven and know they're forgiven, and walk in forgiveness, and have their feet, their spiritual feet, washed tonight by simply coming to Jesus, coming to this wonderful Godhead, Father, Son, and Spirit, and saying, thank you for the forgiveness. Thank you for forgiving me. And that joy of salvation returns. And then we look forward to being a part of what you're doing again. Lord, this life's too short to muddle around without joy. It's just too short. We want to have joy even now, Lord. And so when we step into your presence, it will be unexpressible, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would help all of us tonight to remember you are a restorer of joy. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.